Well, good morning. I noticed uh, I didn't do a podcast yesterday, um, so I'm actually going to combine two ideas, three arguably, that I was going to have into just one. I'm going to try to keep it fairly simple, but um, so it's along the same uh, vein that I've been talking about, learning poly to deepen my understanding of my own faith. So there will be the first word, my, one of my new favorite words. Uh, the word is shrada. If you're going to mark it down, it's S-R-D-D-H-A. Uh, this is faith, commonly translated, but it's important that we understand that it's both faith and commitment. Commitment in what? In, I say prescription, my wife asked me to explain what I mean by that. It means whatever you have faith in. The truth of what you have faith in. You have to be committed. Think of any example we have of people who say they're moral or just, but they'll turn a blind eye to someone who's not in their clique or, right? So the next thing we'll mention, we talk about Sila and Dana and uh, Karuna and Ahimsa. And we talk about these, um, which is going to be another podcast later. We'll talk about these boundless energies, right? Loving kindness, like metta, right? You think, you can't have too much loving kindness. That's why it's both. Because you can love someone so much, you smother them, but that's where the kindness will step in and temper that. Um, you can be kind, uh, but, right, you have to find that balance. So we're talking, and this is where we're going to get to, some interesting points of sila being morality. But when you learn the, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, you find the word sama over and over again. Why? Why do I mention that? Because sama means perfect, right? Paramita means perfections. In this case, we're looking at um, sama, very specifically perfect, right? Paramita, you can break that down to the para being, um, you know, kind of the root of our own parallel, meaning away from. So the paramitas, these perfections that allow you to step away from this um, samsaric world. So in this, we're talking about these right actions, these correct actions. Uh, and on that note, let me just highlight a passage from the Bhagavad Gita. It's the fifth discourse here. Uh, he's talking about the yoga of renunciation of action. And the reason why I mention that is I want us to see how funny it actually is. Okay, and I'm actually going to read the translation of the Sanskrit directly. And it, it's, it's, um, its grammar is a little bit different, and you'll see what I mean. So, this passage, uh, 7, is devoted to the path of action. A man of purified mind, one who's conquered the self, one who has subdued his senses, one who realizes his self as the self in all beings, acting even, not is tainted. Okay, so that specifically, I'm not even going to read the translation by the gentleman that wrote this book. He's excellent, but he may not like that I were to translate or read verbatim his words directly. So I'll just say it goes backwards. So um, even though he's acting, he is untainted. Why? Because he resides devoted to the path of action. Remember that the Gita tells us jhana yoga, or the yoga of knowledge, uh, contemplation, 
for the Hindus, that was the uh, Vipassana. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's early. For the Hindus, that was Shamatha, simply calmness, right? Kind of like the Taoists, just simply sit and, you know, get all your little plates spinning. Vipassana and Shamatha together allows this insight and calmness to kind of work together. That's that difference, uh, along with the difference in the Atman, which I've discussed before, which I think arguably is, is semantics, because if we are universally one in all of these philosophies, it's a matter of just definition, right? Atman, you call him Brahman, Brahman, you call it Tathagata Garba. It's neither here nor there. My new favorite word. But what he's saying here is even in action, if you reside, having, of course, a man with purified mind and who's conquered the self, so again, on the other shore, one who has subdued his senses, one who realizes his self as the self in all beings. That's what I've talked about, this Shunyata doctrine that we commonly translate as emptiness. Empty of independent origination, meaning nothing is what it appears to be. Arguably, we're all one, right? And he goes on. He says, not even anything I do thus, centered in the self, should I think the knower of truth, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, going, sleeping, breathing. So, again, there's no need to fear acting in the Sam Sebrick world when you're... Um, when you're confident, right, committed to this prescription. What's that prescription? It's the idea of anicca, right, impermanence. Nothing lasts, good or bad. Anitta, the not-self, right, not no-self. It's, right, as it says here, rooted, realizing that oneself is as the self in all beings. Again, is as, no different, Part, but separate, yes, right? That's a difficult one to understand. But goes on and says, speaking, letting go, seizing, opening the eyes, closing the eyes, also senses, amongst the sense objects, move thus, being convinced, right? Don't worry about it, get it, go, right? Rested, confident uh, in these truths, right? The three marks of existence that life is inherently dissatisfying. Why? Because we think ourself is the center of the universe, and how do we overcome that by realizing we're not um, any different than everyone else? Yes, we're a different uh, vessel uh, containing the same material, uh, but no different. And again, the impermanence teaches us nothing lasts, good or bad, be it the self or anything else. Uh, the only piece of us that does remain is this... Um, Ability to realize that our ego is the source of this same suffering, right? And he goes on, and again, this is the Gita. So he says, in Brahman, having placed actions, attachments having been abandoned, acts who is tainted not, he by sin, like a lotus leaf by water, right? This is talking... Right? So if you're firm in the belief, we say Brahman in the Gita, you could say your truth in the tath or your um, faith in the prescription of whatever it is you believe. It can be the face in the Tathagata, in if you're a Yogacaran or a Chittamatran. It can be faith in your own um, understanding of mind only. 
right? And uh, so I'm just going to jump ahead a little here. And so now we're in the sixth discourse, which is the yoga of meditation. And it says, when verily not in sense objects, not in actions, is attached, the renouncer of all thoughts, one who has attained yoga then, is said. And what does he say? He goes on and he gives um, a quote from the Upanishad, which I'll, I'll skip. He says, should raise by the self, the self, not the self, let him lower the self only. Verily of the self, friend, the self only, the enemy of the self. Now this, I will actually uh, use his translation, because again, this is because of the, um, the grammar in the Sanskrit, and uh, I actually prefer the Pali myself, um, for getting these across. But he says, one should raise oneself by oneself alone. Remember how he said, uh, both the tool and the barrier to liberation. Let not one lower oneself, right? So don't debase oneself, and certainly don't um, lose that intent, right? Passionless, dispassionless observation with intent. For the self alone is the friend of oneself, and the self alone is the enemy of oneself. Exactly what I've been saying all along, am I right? And it goes on in the sixth discourse. It says, friend, the self of the self, his by whom the self even by the self is conquered, of the unconquered self, but in the place of an enemy would remain, the self even like an enemy. And he says, the self is the friend of the self, of him by whom the self has been conquered by the self. But to the unconquered self, the self stands in the position of an enemy like an external foe. And it goes on and says, of the self-controlled, of the peaceful, of the supreme self, balanced in cold and heat, pleasure and pain, and also as also in honor and dishonor, right? It talks about um, being unmoved, right? It's important to understand this. As I always quote Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, to treat triumph and disaster uh, as the imposters they are, but the same, if you can keep your head about you and all those uh, are losing theirs. Well, when you can keep your head uh, when all those about you are losing theirs, right? That's... Uh, the truth we're talking about here. You must remain dispassionate because the problem is not so much your emotions. They're going to be born. In fact, even in the seventh jhana, it says uh, that thoughts will still be born. It's the detachment from those thoughts, right? So you can't allow those emotions to drive you is the difference. You can have emotions, right? Desires are not going to be absent. You're still going to have that shraddha, Faith and commitment. So there's a desire, right? You make the bodhicitta vow. You vow to liberate or postpone your own liberation for all sentient beings. I mean, you could easily argue that as a selfish motivation. So I'll go on. And he says, One who is satisfied with knowledge and wisdom, self-realization, unshaken, who has conquered the senses, united or harmonized. Thus is said, Yogi, one to whom a lump of earth, a stone, and gold are the same. That is our goal, right? Not to desire uh, wealth or material goods, not to um, 
long for ego. And I mean, it goes on, and that's what I love about this translation that I found not too long ago. Uh, if you're interested, it's a text, word-to-word -word meaning, translation, and com commentary by Swami Sivananda. Sivananda. Interesting, Ananda actually does mean something in Pali. But this is the Bhagavad Gita, the great song. That was the sixth discourse on uh, yoga of meditation. It's important because, as I said earlier, um, it's arguably, according to Krishna, uh, yoga of action is far more important uh, to the yoga of uh, inaction or jhana, knowledge, uh, you know, stepping away from the world. And I, and I separate that from the yoga of renunciation because that itself uh, can be both, right? Because if you renounce all volition and thought and consciousness, you can have your jhana yoga without any trouble because it's important. Because once you achieve these different levels, you're subject to possibly um, falling back because of ego or attainment. The same can be said um, for, uh, well, the same can be said for either one. So as I started and I was talking, I was mentioning how important it is that you understand um, the, the three marks of existence, anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Uh, impermanence, nothing lasts, good or, or bad, that allows us to accept things the way they are, kind of like in a Taoist sense. You, you, you can go with the flow because you understand that your ego is principally the source of your ills and suffering. As the Heart Sutra says, when you're coursing in the paraparamita, the perfection of wisdom, you see that all ills and suffering never manifest. Why? It's that same quote we mentioned in a previous podcast, right? That there'd be no need for enlightenment if there were no ignorance, right? So again, I'll go on and say that it's important that we talk about these things. The reason why I mention Shraddha. Shraddha is important because it's often mistranslated as simply faith. It's important that we know um, faith, commitment, right? Commitment in the path, but more importantly, commit, uh, commitment in the prescription. Now, this isn't like um, commitment, uh, like, for example, in Islam, where you, um, uh, you submit uh, to Allah and the oneness of all beings, right? Supplication. Uh, this is commitment because you have to understand that your ego is constantly going to try to make you second-guess your beliefs. And <laughs> I'll just give you an example. Uh, I know it's crazy. I've been a Buddhist for 30-plus years. So a Buddhist longer than 1993. And for some reason, I never saw the movie Little Buddha. It's Tibetan. I was a Tibetan long before that. I've, I've actually maybe shared the story that... Um, I had actually been introduced to Blavatsky, who was very obviously tantric because the Theosophical Society was interested in esoteric. So obviously they're not going to go with the Theravadin or the boring run-of-the-mill Nalanda logisticians. I can't say that. The logic-based tradition of the Nalanda University. They were much more into esoteric stuff. So come 1993, um, I never watched this movie. I'm actually quite surprised. And the reason why I mention it, not that it's great. I mean, you, there's some issues in there. You can certainly watch it if you'd like. The reason why I'm going to mention it is, once again, I've actually run into this uh, giving tours. Um, the misunderstanding of what um, 
well, Shakyamuni's or Siddhartha or Gautama, right? The Buddha that we revere. Again, I want to mention, why do we revere this Buddha? I'm going to get to this. Again, we call uh, that particular Buddha Sama Sambuddha or Sama Sambuddham. Why? And it sounds funny because like I told you, Sama is perfect. So Sama Sambuddha means the perfect, perfect Buddha, right? Why it's funny to hear, kind of like my new favorite word I mentioned yesterday or the day before, right? Um, uh, Satipatipati. It's the same idea. You can't just say Satipati because, well, is that study of mindfulness or is it practice of mindfulness? You want both the practice and the study. So that's why we say Patipati. It's the practice and study. So I say Satipatipati because I think the entire practice is awareness to remember, right, that our suffering is rooted in our ego, to remember that everything's impermanent, to remember that we must be aware, to remember we must be compassionate, to remember we must be loving, kind, right? So we go on and we talk about something that was, again, like I said, another episode, but I was going to talk about one of the earliest and what it's called, the Dhammakari. Um, it's one of the very earliest uh, mantras. And it's very simply as a mantra. It's Dhammam, right? Because you add the M, it's Pali. Sharanam, commonly translated, but since it's not Sanskrit, it's Pali, it would be Saranam Gachami. So that's I go to the Buddha for refuge. And it's Dhammam Saranam Gachami. It's a long A. I go to the Dhamma for refuge. So again, I have faith in the Dhamma. I have faith in the Buddha. I seek refuge. What? When my faith falters. I have that commitment because I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dharma for refuge. And finally, Sangam Saranam Gachami. I go to the Sangha for refuge. That's an interesting word. I will talk about it another time. But when you break down Sangha, it's not specifically the community, it's the like-minded individuals. So it can include your Hindu tradition, which just this morning, right, had a gentleman say that he finds great peace uh, from the prescription of uh, the Buddha, and he's a Hindu. But we go on, commonly unknown, that will actually continue and go, Dutyampi, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami. Right? So, for a second time, I go to the Buddha for refuge. And a second time, I go to the Dhamma for refuge. And again, for a third time, we go through each for refuge. Right? A lot of th in threes, but this is a pattern. I, I do believe we have these patterns in a lot of our ritual. Again, Buddhism, we're not supposed to take part in rites or rituals or ceremonies. But the human being seems subject to these failings. So repeating it three times kind of locks it in or makes it a ritual or as it was originally intended, it distracts the mind, right? The mind that is looking at the skanda, all these uh, ephemeral, all of the phenomena in this world that's there just to distract us, or it's listening to the ego that's there simply to distract us. The mantras 
to tie up that mind, tie up that one part of the self so that the other part of the self can see what's your goal, the goal to be aware, to remember. What are you to remember? And here's our lifelong eight precepts that should also be undertaken along with the mantra. Right? I undertake the training step to abstain from taking life. Sama Dhyamai. Right? I undertake to not take what is not given. Right? I undertake the training step to abstain from sexual misconduct. Right? And so I'll go back to what I mentioned, the little Buddha movie. And Mara. So they showed lightning and the, and the water, right, kind of, you know, scaring him. But there were some important things there. First, we'll, let's go backwards, the sexual misconduct. So Mara had three beautiful young, five if, um, in the movie, but neither here nor there. Mara had a number of beautiful young ladies try to tempt Gotama. Why? Because you can certainly have desire for an individual lady, may not be misconduct, but if you're desirous of multiple, certainly you can consider that misconduct. If nothing else, it's certainly going to deplete your prana if you're going to try to, uh, you know, right effort and action in all of that. So we'll back up a little bit and we'll talk about, right, abstain from taking what's not given. I mean, that's just stealing. Abstain from taking life. I mean, that's pretty simple. Abstain from lying. Abstain from divisive speech. Harsh speech, that's important, because we often um, just talk about uh, right speech, correct speech, or sama, sama. Um, Veramani, I believe, no. I can't remember what, uh, what the actual, uh, I'd have to look it up, to be honest. But we talk about right speech, sama. But we forget that it includes harsh speech, divisive speech. So, I mean, saying something that, you know, you didn't really think of the other person's feelings before you, you put it across or how it might be taken uh, based on your own personal experience and your, your relationship between the two of you, right? You must try not to speak um, in a divisive manner or in a harsh manner. It even mentions idle chatter. Now, in this case, the reason why it kind of threw me a bit because I was actually looking... Uh, it commonly talks about uh, speech used to get what you want, right? Self-interest, right? And finally, it talks about wrong livelihood. Right? So, we make all of these, um, I mean, oaths. But all of it is simply, as I said, it's simply um, the prescription is just to be correct in all of your actions, your thoughts, and your motivations, Right? So when Mara came up, he tried to tempt Gotama with a bunch of lovely young ladies, right? Which is common. He tried to tempt him with uh, sensuous desires. He tried to scare him with storms and lightning, great nature's power, right? Tried to, um, tried to scare him with great armies bearing down on him, right? And then finally, well, not finally, but finally, final example, he appeared to Gautama as himself, right? Because, once again, we are these two selves, but more importantly, I mean, who is our greatest enemy? It's our own um, second guessing. It's our own um, 
our own, I mean, what do we call that? Our little voice in our head that, you know, constantly, rather than supporting ourselves, right? Telling, you can do it. It's constantly trying to tell us we can't or we shouldn't or, you know, it's just trying to keep us trapped here, right? And as the story goes, finally Mara gave up. But the big part of this story that I find funny is, right, he spent a month under the tree. He achieved his enlightenment. He even figured out most of these uh, truths. I mean, he spent some time after. You know, figuring out some of the additional stuff. Even I've mentioned before the truth of that about what he actually did for the the weeks after his enlightenment are uh, are up for discussion. But neither here nor there. Not germane to the conversation at the moment. Because what I want to discuss is after his struggle with himself and Mara and everything else. He sat under that tree, again, being fully awakened, as we uh, understand it, understanding all of what, pretty much what he's taught. He was just trying to figure out some basic stuff, right? It's the, um, they say the dependent origination and some other issues he uh, worked out later. But he understood uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So he understood that our ego is the source of our suffering. And to get over that, we just had to understand right actions and speech and, and, and livelihood uh, and effort and samadhi, right, concentration. But he sat there for, history tells us, seven days. Not because he lacked confidence in the prescription that he had learned, because he achieved liberation himself through it, and having become one with the uh, Tathagata Garbha, which is that thatness, thatness, what thatness, the awareness Store. That's what Garba means. It's the store, the treasure house uh, within us all. Um, once he became one with all, again, as we've been told, the Lord tells us that um, he had Maitreya and uh, Avilokitesra as tutors. So, obviously, he achieved uh, complete awakening, and there was no doubt for him that he understood it completely. Yet, again, as I said, not because of a lack of confidence in his own abilities or his knowledge or even the prescription itself, right? He had complete and utter shraddha, faith and commitment. The problem was us. There is no contention in this that the stories tell us that once this gentleman realized, I mean, it doesn't have to be magical in any way. He spent this time under a tree because he was so worried about the rest of mankind, people kind, suffering, that he devoted himself and gave of himself to try to find a solution to this dissatisfaction, this suffering, these ills that we're all subject to. Yet, when he achieved this final liberation for himself, again, as I've said, this is why we call him the Samasambuddha, because he achieved liberation for himself. And not only did he vow to remain and teach, so that he can help all the rest of sentient beings achieve the same liberation and peace that he had just achieved. But he vowed this even in spite of the fact that as he was sitting, completely awakened after um, his uh, enlightenment experience under the Bodhi tree, uh, he sat there for, well, the Lord says, seven days 
questioning whether man, sorry, people kind, uh, even had the ability to understand this truth, whether they would be willing to believe that their ego is the source of their suffering, uh, and whether we even had it within us because we are so jaded and you know, so suffered. The, what that flows from is they say that um, this was his uh, lifetime, right? Gautama was born for this liberation. They say when he was born, he walked, and at each step a lotus blossomed. and You know what I mean? Uh, he prophesied that he would be a great guru. But that's neither here nor there, because, again, I mean, I mean you don't have to believe in a magical power if you stop and, and look at this prescription, you, you'd be hard-pressed not to agree that, yeah, I mean, for the most part, most of us are our own worst enemies, right? So here's a gentleman, seems to have figured it all out. He's at complete peace. He wants to help us all, but, oh God, he has no idea how he'd make us understand, uh, let alone believe. Uh, and, I mean, of course, how are we going to achieve this liberation if he doesn't believe we can even hear him, right? And what's funny is in the end, most stories, not all, stories say that uh, it took Brahma to actually come down. It's a little funny. I mean, it would probably be Krishna, right? Because you don't usually interact directly with Brahma. But what I find funny is arguably since uh, Gautama was fully aware of his own uh, Atman, arguably he could commune with Krishna directly, right? Because if they are not of this samsaric realm, then they could all be wherever they'd like, right? Parasamgate, on the other shore. So the story goes that the Buddha um, didn't vow to teach until he was convinced by uh, Brahman. 